If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. If it's inspired you and you're able to support this podcast starting at just $1 per month, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. With this being an independent platform, I am looking for more support to be able to continue the show. So thank you so much if you're already a patron. It helps a lot and I really do appreciate it. You know, we have one ocean that we all share and it, it it, you know, our pollution could end up anywhere and the impacts that we have on that ocean really do go around the globe. That was Emily Penn, an ocean advocate, skipper, artist, and the co-founder of X Expedition, an all-female sailing voyage and scientific research mission currently exploring the issue of plastic pollution in the ocean. Stay tuned as we're about to explore why people in developed countries cannot just look at the primary sources of ocean plastic pollution stemming from so-called developing countries and feel that this absolves us of responsibility, the known and unknown health impacts of chronic exposure to plastic bits and their associated chemicals, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. So I think I've always grown up just loving the ocean. When I was little, I used to love going snorkeling on holiday. Then I learned to sail. And as a teenager, I spent most of my free time sailing around in just small one-person sailing dinghies and got into racing. And then as I got a bit older, I then had an opportunity to, to try out a big boat. And when I left university, having studied architecture, I actually wanted to get from England to Australia without taking an aeroplane mm -hmm. and looked at ways to hitchhike on a boat around the world. It was that experience, age 21, that I saw plastic in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And that, that sort of changed the course of my career because I started thinking about it, working on it, and what I thought was initially a gap year turned into a career. 
Well, plastic pollution has been covered quite extensively by the media in the past few years, and we've talked about it in our past episodes as well as from different guests working on different areas of this. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts on why plastics have been making their ways into the ocean. Because a lot of people may hear about marine pollution and be like, "I put my plastics in the garbage can or the recycling bin, and I don't, I don't literally toss trash into the ocean." So, where's the loophole in the system we've set up that's allowed this to happen? Sure, it's a great question, and what we know now is that about eighty percent of plastic is coming from land from us. And then 20% of the plastic in the ocean is coming from fishing and shipping industries, so people who are actually already out there. But to then focus on that 80%, you know, as you say, how does it get from where we think it's going in our recycling bin into the sea? And depends a lot on where you live. So living here in the UK or maybe the rest of Europe, America, you're most likely disposing of your waste correctly, and a lot of it will end up going into landfill. Or it will be recycled, which normally recycled means it's actually turned into something else that's not as useful as what it was originally. So we rarely have bottle-to-bottle recycling, but you might turn a bottle into a bus shelter or something like that. So that happens with a lot of our waste, but a surprising amount escapes. So it might get blown away. I'm looking out onto the street right now, and I can see plastic in the gutter. As soon as it goes into that gutter, that only leads straight into the ocean. So it might sort of escape the system, but it's also surprising how much of our recycling waste actually ends up elsewhere, not being recycled, but gets shipped to another country. And often, when it gets shipped to another country, like a lot of our waste here in the UK gets shipped to Asia, it's coming out now that actually it's not then usually recycled. It's often disposed of when it gets there, and quite likely into the ocean. So that's if you're living in,、um, you know, in a, a sort of Western country. But if you're living in an emerging nation, then quite typically there isn't any waste management system at all. You know, no one comes and picks up your waste from outside your house. There's nowhere to take it, even if you wanted to. And the only option is for it to go into a stream, a drain, a river, which ultimately everything runs downhill to the sea.、Mm. Now, for those living in Western countries. Why do our recyclables get shipped to Asia? Yeah, and it's probably a, a question you know that's very dependent on the government or the local council.、Mm. But yes, it, it's basically because we're outsourcing that kind of messy, smelly process of recycling is, is one reason. You know, as the same way we're buying lots of our products from Asia, we're also asking them to deal with the disposal. And then also because financially, there's financial incentives for these. Countries to take it off our hands because we simply don't have space for it.、Um, mm-hmm. Certainly, on a, a little island like the UK that has a lot of people in quite a small area, and、um, that you know there is not much room.、Mm. And even for those of us with、uh, waste management systems in our cities and recycling facilities, the recycling rate for plastics is still very low, right? So, what is happening there? Why is it so inefficient to recycle plastics? Yeah, so the global recycling rate of plastic at the moment is around nine percent, which when I first discovered that, I just couldn't believe how low it was. And part of that is because so few types of plastic are actually recycled. 
there's the clear what we call PET bottles that have a number one on the bottom of them. And they're quite widely recycled around the world. There's also HDPE and number two, which is well recycled. But beyond that, the rest of the plastics, they all have different chemical structures to give them the different properties that we enjoy. You know, some plastics are very flexible, some are see-through. And to give them those different unique properties, they need to have different additives. But when you recycle something, you can only take a very pure plastic to get a good quality product at the other end. So the main reason our recycling rates are so low is because we don't design products to be recycled. We design them to sell well on the mm. shelves um, because they're a bright color or they, you know, squeeze nicely or whatever it might be. <laughs> and so, you know, because because we're designing them for that, it means then they're unrecyclable basically at the other end. So right. for me, that's the thing that needs to change. So basically, in order for plastic to be recycled, they need to be putting the same types of plastics together. But when we're creating so many different types of plastic with so many different chemical properties, it becomes very difficult for us to then put that together and make that recyclable. Exactly. And then when you have something like a toothbrush often has three or four different types of plastic stuck together in one object, you know, the handle, the grip, the bristles is all different plastic. And then so to recycle that, the first thing you have to do is dissemble the whole thing, but it's all glued together. And as you can imagine that it's just not cost effective right. um, to recycle it so it doesn't get recycled. I feel like a lot of things technically can be recycled, but it's just that the cost piece doesn't play out in that it's not worth it for recyclers to have to sort through all of these things, pick apart the grips on the toothbrush and all of that. So exactly. in the end, there's yeah. it's easier just to create new stuff than to take all of this apart and recycle it. Exactly. And, and virgin plastic, you know, plastic straight from the ground is just so cheap. And it's much cheaper than going through that process of sorting through all of our old waste and separating it out mm. because we're not designing for it to be recycled. But as you say, technically, almost anything is recyclable, um, right. but it's usually not worth it. Now, as you did your research for the Pacific Islands that you came across, what did you learn in regards to how people came to be reliant on packaged foods as a part of the emerging nations that don't currently have recycling facilities or w proper waste management in place? How did they come to have to rely on packaged foods? Yeah, so it was often um, usually driven by something else and a depletion in their own local resources. So a lot of these small islands, the fisheries that are around those islands have collapsed from commercial fishing, usually where boats from another country are coming into their waters and fishing, sometimes illegally, but often it's legal because they've bought a permit. Um, but end result is there's no fish left for the locals to catch. Then compounded on top of that, the sea level is rising on a lot of these small, low-lying islands, which while the island is still there, the main consequence so far is that their soil has become so salty, they can't grow their normal crops because mm. that soil is so full of seawater. And so they can't grow things, they can't catch things. And so they then turn to importing food. And of course, the only way to import food thousands of miles by ship across an ocean and keep it preserved is really in plastic or at least that's the easiest and cheapest way. And so that's what happens. So a lot of these communities that once you were able to catch and grow your own food, you're now having to import plastic packaged food to survive. Mm. Um, so that's definitely been the biggest driver. 
of waste ending up in these places. Sometimes people talk about packaged foods as though it were a convenience that people should just try harder. And for many of us, yes, we should try harder if we have access to alternative options. But it sounds like in some cases it's, it's become a necessity for people without access to farmers markets or bulk stores near them, or in this example, for subsistence fishing communities whose fisheries have been depleted because of overfishing to meet global demand for seafood. In other words, I think it's easy for people with great recycling facilities. In our cities, to just say, oh, that's happening over there in places where people are dumping trash into their rivers and oceans, but that has nothing to do with me. When in reality, maybe we're contributing indirectly to compromising their traditional lifeways, so that they they're now forced to eat packaged foods in spite of them not having proper waste management systems. Exactly. You know, if you're eating the tuna that's been caught in their fisheries, then you know, not only that's leading to the depletion of their resources. But it's also likely leading to plastic fishing waste, which, you know, there's a huge amount from the fishing industry that ends up on their shores as well. So it's a sort of double implication. Mm. Everything is connected. Every issue is connected as well. Especially when it comes to the ocean. You know, we have one ocean that we all share. Right. And, you know, our pollution could end up anywhere. And the impacts that we have on that ocean really do go around the globe. So what impact do we know plastic pollution having right now on marine life? What are some of the latest findings? So we definitely know that they are getting tangled up in it, um, which often then they end up dying, especially a mammal that has to get up to the surface to breathe, like a sea turtle or a whale. And then we also know that they're mistaking it for food and ingesting it. And while the plastic itself, having a piece of plastic in them doesn't kill them, by the time they get a lot, they then die of starvation because there's no room for food. And actually, just last week, I dissected or helped to dissect a sea turtle and a seabird. And we found an enormous amount of plastic mm. inside their stomachs. And just, you know, what an, a horrible experience that really made you realize what we're doing. Right. Uh, to these, you know, poor animals that that simply don't know any better than, you know, thinking that they're they're eating food and they end up eating the plastic. And in addition to what's super visual, so the plastic pieces that we see in the stomachs of of our marine life, from my understanding, it's not just those pieces themselves that are a part of the concern, but also the concoction of chemicals that we dump into our waterways or that may bypass wastewater treatment systems and then enter our oceans. What do we know about that and how does that relate to plastic pollution? Sure. So the the truth here is that we don't know enough about this to know for sure what's happening. And this is an area that needs a lot more research. But some of the things and particularly the theoretical side of what's happening is chemicals that end up in the ocean, like pesticides that we obviously use on our land, which is useful to get higher yields of our crops. But when those pesticides end up in the ocean as a pollutant, they can have negative impacts on sea life and and eventually potentially us getting back into our bodies as endocrine disruptors that affect our hormones. Mm. We also have things like flame retardant chemicals that we put on our upholstery, our car interiors, our plastics to stop them combusting. And also fluorinated compounds, which um, go on our non-stick frying pans and our outdoor clothing to keep it waterproof. So really useful chemicals that have obviously been created for good reason. 
But when they end up as a pollutant in the environment, what we now know is that they are bioaccumulating up the food chain and that because they're persistent and, and are toxic, really, to both animals and us as human beings. The research at the moment is trying to understand whether plastic actually carries those chemicals into the food chain, which is something that, that's being looked at to understand further. Wow. Um, but they're obviously chemicals that we don't want inside our bodies. They lead to cancer and they disrupt our hormones. We can pass them on to our children. And while we're still unsure about exactly how these chemicals are getting into our bodies, what we do know is that they are in there. I personally had my own blood tested a few right. years ago. <laughs> yeah, to look at these chemicals that we were finding in the ocean. And it did. Of, of 35 banned toxic chemicals that we tested for, we found 29 of them in my blood. Um, and so it made me realize that it was something worth studying and, and trying to find out more answers to. Right. Well, to help raise awareness for all of this and for plastic pollution, you started X Expedition in 2014. What was the inspiration for that? And what exactly are you doing out there to support education and research in this area? Yeah, so X Expedition, it's this series of all women sailing voyages. At the time, I'd already been at sea for a few years looking at plastic pollution in these gyres, these accumulation zones in the ocean where all the plastic ends up due to these ocean currents. Having done that blood test and finding out really that a lot of these hormone disrupting chemicals can impact women during pregnancy and also the fact that we can pass them on to the next generation, I thought, why not tackle this issue with an amazing team of women? Mm. And so we pulled together a group of 14 women from all over the world, all different skills and backgrounds to go out and do scientific research and also look at the different roles that we can all play in solving the problem. Because the more time I spend out there, the more I realize that Firstly, the solutions start on land, but secondly, that there's no silver bullet to solving this plastics and toxics problem, and that actually we need lots of solutions working from every angle of society. And so that's very much what we're trying to do is take a multidisciplinary group of people to see the problem firsthand, to understand what's going on, and therefore be in a great position to solve it and work collaboratively when they get home. And the blood test that you ran on yourself, I'm really curious about that. So <laughs> I know some of your other crew members did this as well. What were some other findings that this led you to? Yeah, a whole group of us did it. And um, I mean, it's obviously with such a small sample set, you can't sort of scientifically prove anything. But some of the, the interesting things that we did see is some of the older members of the group had DDT in their results, um, which is this chemical that was banned in the 1970s because it was preventing the bald eagle from laying eggs. And they'd realized that this DDT that had been used to try and kill mosquitoes and control malaria was actually accumulating up the food chain. But what was interesting is that the women who were older um, and therefore born before that early 70s period had this in them. And those of us who were born later, we didn't, which I found actually a very positive story, that if we all decide to ban something and to take control back, then you can literally see the positive results um, in our own bodies. 
So so that was one interesting trend that we saw in our small small group. But others, just based on backgrounds and nationalities, certain countries have stricter rules on levels of, for example, flame retardant chemicals that have to be on your upholstery. And others, those chemicals don't even exist in the country. And you could really see that in the, the data as well, depending on where each of our team members had actually grown up. Now, with that DDT example, do these chemicals just not get metabolized or they end up accumulating in our bodies and our bodies are incapable of getting rid of them? Yeah, again, it's something a lot of scientists are still trying to understand at the moment. But but basically, because they're what we call persistent organic pollutants, that persistent basically means they never degrade um, and never go away. I mean, our bodies are amazing. They're really good at kind of packaging up toxic compounds in parts of the body, storing it in fat and, and kind of packaging it away so that it isn't in our bloodstream and it's not impacting our organs. And so, you know, that allows us to to sort of not not feel those impacts from it. But what we what we really know is that they don't seem to actually leave us. Right. And unless, of course, you you have children or you breastfeed um, and it's actually being found to come out in your breast milk. Um, That's not better, though. <laughs> it's not better at all, is yeah. it? No. Well, exactly. So that's one of the scary things. Just out of personal curiosity, if I wanted to get tested for these chemicals, where can I go to do that? And are there ongoing research projects taking volunteers wanting to be tested for data collection purposes or will there be? So there's very limited studies doing it. In fact, the one that we worked with is no longer running. Um, and it's partly just due to lack of funding into this area of research. As you can imagine, for most chemical companies, it's their worst nightmare. <laughs> um, of, uh, That's why we should research. make it happen. <laughs> yeah, being being kind of better understood. So it's, it's quite hard to do. And it's a case of probably finding somewhere locally because it's also very hard to ship blood samples across countries. So it depends a lot on where in the world you come from. But certainly here in the UK, we've struggled to find a new partner um, since the the, uh, previous project we're working with wrapped up. Mm. So um, I don't have that much advice on where you can do it. And unfortunately, it's just extremely expensive because the type of equipment needed to do it um, is, you know, not found uh, in many labs in the world. It's not like a a doctor surgery type, type test. Right. One thing that you can do, actually, though, is test for mercury and, and heavy metals. And they're not the same as the persistent organic pollutants that we've been talking about, but they do end up getting into our bodies through a lot of the same ways. Um, so you, you've probably heard of mercury, particularly pregnant women are, are warned of eating, not eating too much tuna and sort of high-end predators, you know, things at the top of the food chain, which are likely to have more of those chemicals inside them because mercury has has been proven to cause problems with development of, of babies and also young children. And you can actually do that test by just sending off a, a clip of your hair because oh, um, okay. <laughs> mercury kind of comes out of your hair. And I think, you know, for a sort of less than $100, you can get a sample like that processed. Cool. That is um, good to know. Which is easier than the blood. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll definitely keep an eye out on this to see if there are new developments in terms of the research projects that are happening. But um, for now, in chemistry, there's this idea that toxicity is dependent on the dosage. So as the famous saying goes, the dose makes the poison. 
So what I've been seeing people say is the levels of these chemicals found in our everyday products or the flame retardants used in our textiles individually or the agrochemical residues left on our produce, independently their doses are, are low enough that they may not be considered toxic for now. So what do you say to that in regards to why we still need to take this seriously? Sure. You know, I, I agree that and, and also knowing that the chemicals inside me, those 29 chemicals, they were all relatively low levels that we don't need to be immediately alarmed about our health. I think for me, though, the scary thing is the fact that we're using more chemicals, the fact that we're polluting more, the fact that they're persistent and they never disappear. And the fact that they're already getting into our bodies is a kind of scary thought of the direction that we're going. You know, we have more chemicals in us now than the generations before. And so I sort of don't don't want it to get any worse, get to that level um, that it's too high. And also the fact that, you know, we see whales, for example, who are really an indicator for us as humans on this planet. They're at the top of their food chain and they are being impacted by the toxic chemicals that they have in their bodies. They're struggling to to, to have calves and these chemicals are, are killing them. And so, you know, have, having seen that, I think that we, we do need to be very careful about the direction that we're heading. Mm-hmm. And I feel we don't want to go any further than where we are now. So, I mean, individual manufacturers may say, oh, this product is safe for you. The, the level of this chemical is so low that it's negligible. But what we really have to take into account is this whole picture of how every industry is putting out products with a little bit of this chemical or a little bit of that, and this all can add up. So individually, they may not be too alarming, but then we're constantly exposed to all of these things from a variety of sources every single day. Exactly, that accumulation. And I think it's just so hard to know. And unfortunately, that is the story of this conversation, is we don't know enough about the impacts. We don't know what happens when one chemical is with another chemical. You know, there's talk about this cocktail of chemicals being the real problem um, rather than just one on its own. And these are all the things that we need to find out. But it's very hard when you have so many variables. We have maybe six or seven hundred toxic chemicals in our body that shouldn't be there. Mm. And, of, you know, throughout your lifetime, you're exposed to so many different things. We've all got different genes. It's very hard to know what triggers what. And, you know, if you were to get an illness, being able to know whether or not that was caused by a chemical in your body without having human beings in controlled experiments is quite a challenge. So, I mean, that sounds like a huge issue because I feel like in order to actually get chemicals to be regulated, they typically want proof that it's toxic or that it's doing damage to people's health. But when such research is so difficult to be conducted... How is that ever going to happen? (laughs) Well, exactly. And what seems to happen at the moment is a a company can put a chemical on the shelf and then it has to be proven to be um, have a negative impact on health or the environment before it gets banned, by which time there's another chemical ready to replace it that you then have to go through that whole process of proof to get it banned as well. And it's almost like a backwards way round. We kind of need to prove it's safe before it's allowed to be sold rather than let it be sold to then prove that it's unsafe. So perhaps that's the challenge. 
Well, I want to go into solutions. <laughs> so yes. in addition to X Expedition, <laughs> you're also training athletes and celebrities to be impactful advocates on ocean issues. We know that celebrities can be hugely influential in helping to raise awareness for key issues with the, the massive reach that they may have. What role do you see athletes being able to play in advocating for ocean issues? And what's been most important to you in terms of what you're training them to do or say? Yeah, so I think athletes probably pay, play two really important roles. And one is as a role model, similar to how you've talked about a celebrity there. You know, they have an opportunity to influence because people look up to them. And, you know, we look up to our heroes and we copy their behavior. And so having a role model, an athlete who you know isn't using single-use plastic and is proving that actually even to be at top of their field, they're able to do it in a sustainable way uh, is such a powerful message. So that's one thing for sure. I think the other opportunity that athletes have is when sport in general is that there's a lot of innovation that goes on around sport, whether it's in the apparel, you know, the shoes that an athlete might be wearing or um, in my world in a sailing boat, you know, the, the actual boat that they're sailing and the technology around that. And if we can kind of shift the bar really and, and set new objectives to be able to innovate in this sports space, then I think that's going to go a long way to influence the rest of industry as well. And it's almost sort of like high-end sport can be a really interesting way to scale solutions. Mm. You know, imagine the Olympics turned around and said, next year, every athlete needs to be wearing clothing that's completely closed loop clothing that, you know, it has a life afterwards. Suddenly, all of these sports industries would be trying to make the best clothing for that Wow. Um, How do we get that to happen? They, well, exactly. You know, so there's huge power in sport um, that almost is like regulation, but without all of the government red tape. And you can almost make innovation scale faster, um, I think, think right. through that world. So that's why I really love working with athletes. I just think there's a huge amount of power and opportunity to create change. Yeah. And another big project you've taken on is you're working on developing upstream solutions to the ocean plastic issue with corporate partners, scientists and government bodies. What are upstream solutions and why the focus on that? Sure. So that basically means working on land rather than on cleanup of the ocean. You know, having spent so many years out there at sea, one of the things that you realize is firstly how big the ocean is. <laughs> it covers 70% of our planet. Um, and even after 10 years of sailing around on it, I feel like I've I've barely seen any because it is just so, so vast. And this idea that we can go out and, and clean up once the currents have whisked all that plastic and pollution away is really, really hard. It also breaks down into tiny fragments, what we call microplastics, that are very hard to separate from the marine life, the zooplankton and everything that lives on the surface of the ocean as well. And now what we know is that a lot of it's sinking to the bottom to a place that's so deep, we can't even get down there to measure it, let alone try and clean it up. Um, so those learnings have really showed me that the main opportunity we have to solve this problem is right here on our doorstep. And it starts with preventing plastic, as we talked about earlier, kind of escaping waste management. But even more than that, it's about just not using the plastic in the first place and finding better solutions, whether it's innovative materials or systems in our society that mean that we don't need to be using plastic, particularly single-use plastic, these things that are designed to be used once and thrown away. 
like food packaging or water bottles and, and looking for ways that we can still be able to do what we want to do, go about our daily lives, but without creating all that waste. So when I talk about upstream solutions, I'm talking about the role legislation can play in government, the way in industry we can innovate, we can create new materials and new systems, and then in individuals, how we can shift our behavior mm. um, so we're not using that plastic. For a listener who, who may feel great about their current personal lifestyle journey in terms of reducing their own waste and who wants to go beyond that to make a bigger impact, what would you recommend that they do to be able to help drive more systemic change as you've done? This is what it all comes down to for me. Once you've eliminated your own single-use plastic consumption, at least as best as you can, then think about what more you can do. And there's because there's so many things that we can do, it's quite easy to get overwhelmed with the options and want to try and do a little bit of everything or not really know where to start. But at the end of the day, all of those answers are, are right. You know, we need to tackle this problem from all angles. So it's just a case of working out what's the best solution for you. Um, and so whatever it is that you're brilliant at, you know, your skill set, your area of expertise, it's finding out where that crosses the issue. So, you know, if you're a teacher, how can you bring the learning about this issue into your classroom um, with your students? If you are a filmmaker, how can you carry this message through film or make some cool Instagram stories or something that, you know, spread that message further? If you are a chemist, how can you use, you know, green chemistry? How can you maybe create a new material or a new process that allows us to do things differently? Influencing policy, you know, the, the list just goes on and on. If you're a chef, how do you get it out of your kitchen? If you're a hairdresser, how do you eliminate it from a hair salon? How could you share that with all the hair salons in the town that you live in? And, you know, you can just kind of scale it up as much as you like from your house to your community to your school to your work to you know your town and eventually maybe globally and so it really comes back down to that question of you know what is your area of influence like those athletes they have two very clear areas of influence and, and what's yours towards the end of 2018 i made green dreamer planners printed on fsc certified paper with soy ink featuring our major environmental awareness dates and motivational quotes from our past guests that also supported reforestation projects with the nonprofit eden projects I was initially hesitant to make them again this year because after covering a host of unexpected costs from unfortunate things that happened last year, it ended up not making any sense for me financially, especially when I'm trying to fundraise to be able to keep this show going. But so many people have been asking me about it in the past few months, saying it really supported them this past year, they really hope that I can bring them back, that I started researching my options again to see how I can improve upon what I did last year and actually make it work out. So I'm in the process of working on a 2020 to 21 Green Dreamer planner right now. If you may be interested, please do sign up to Green Dreamer's Weekly Digest so I can keep you posted and so I can also gauge interest levels for me to keep doing this. And even with that aside, I'd love for you to subscribe for free to our Weekly Digest anyway, where we share solutions-driven positive news stories to keep us motivated and inspired every single week. To sign up, you can head to greendreamer.com slash subscribe. I hope to catch you in your inbox, but for now, to our final five. Let's power through. 
What's an uplifting social media account or a publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? I didn't have an answer for this one. Um, <laughs> just because I don't read very much, I like to get out there and ask people and have my own experiences. <laughs> what it, who is one person who you've spoken to that has had a profound impact on you then? Probably the person at the beginning of my career was Pete Bethune, the founder of Earthrace, the boat I helped take around the world. And he made me realize that you can do anything you put your mind to mm. and that the importance of standing up for what you believe in. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? I think my positivity comes from the people around me and their keenness to actually create change and passing on what I've learned. Um, so I think all my inspiration and positivity at the moment is coming from others wanting to be part of it and help. Mm. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? Getting at least eight hours sleep a night. What are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our planet? I'm trying to build an army of change makers um, who are using their skills in the very best way to create change. And what makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? Again, the people I meet, there's so much positivity. Everyone is wanting to do something um, and make a difference right now, or at least all the people that I come into contact with. And I know that we can do it because if human beings put their mind to something, um, we've proven again and again that, that we can. Well, Green Dreamer, to learn more and stay updated on Emily's work, you can head to www.emilypen.co.uk. The pen is P-E-N-N. -N. If you're interested in learning more about X Expedition and applying to join a part of Emily's journey, you can head to exexpedition.com. And Emily, anyone can apply to join this, correct? People don't have to have sailing experience? No, not at all. Just an ambition to tackle a plastics problem beautiful. And you can also follow Emily on Facebook at Miss Emily Penn, on Twitter at Emily Penn, and Instagram at Miss Emily Penn. As always, I'll have all this linked in our show notes at greendreamer.com in, in case you're on the go at the moment. Emily, thank you so much for joining us today, and we wish you all the best on your expeditions and everything that you're doing. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? to just get out there, be curious, ask lots of questions and give things a go. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. To support the show, access extended content and join our Green Dreamer network, you can head to greendreamer.com support for more information. To receive weekly solutions-driven news around ecological regeneration and intersectional sustainability, you can sign up to our free Green Dreamer Weekly Digest at greendreamer.com. And if you'd like to come say hey to let me know that you're tuning in, you can find me on Instagram at greendreamerpodcast and at Shane. Finally, as we're wrapping up here, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.